The 2017 Australasian Simulation Congress, presented by Simulation Australasia and Simulcast. Hi, I'm Victoria Brazel from Simulcast, and we're now bringing you the third and final day of the Australasian Simulation Congress. One of the concurrent sessions at the start of the day was entitled Hands Off Teaching, and Ben had a discussion with those who put that on. And I'm here with Rob Peden and Dr David Gillespie from the ISIM Centre and C4 at Coffs Harbour and I've just been in a fantastic session about hands-off teaching. And I'm wondering if you guys can explain uh, what that is and why it's important. Hands-off teaching is a process by which we let the trainees um, complete a whole case on their own with close supervision and we provide a um, structure by which the consultant can intervene, so usually holding a physical object combines a number of kind of cognitive aspects including deliberate practice, cognitive fidelity, tacit knowledge and also helps deal with the varying risk tolerances between different consultants and different trainees and the plan is to provide an experiential learning environment for the trainee in real time in, in a real case. So essentially it's a bit like um, contemporaneous debriefing where the supervisor continually questions the, um, the trainee um, to understand their mental model and to be able to picture what's going on with their procedure or the, the actual the, the process that they're up to within the case. You know, trying not to ask why they're doing something, but actually what they're doing, what they're hoping to achieve by their actions, what they're anticipating will happen next. Getting them to actually share that, that process and also getting them to cognitively lock in um, what they're doing as opposed to having a supervisor come in and take over when something goes wrong or give full direction on what to do next, whereas it's actually the supervisor running the case, they're just the hands, whereas what we're trying to get here is that the trainee is doing the case with supervision with hands off, so preventing the actual um, supervisor from stepping in. It was really illuminating for me, I guess, as someone who's been able to recognise that we're sometimes mollycoddling our trainees a little bit in the name of patient safety to the point that we're potentially not empowering our trainees to actually take ownership of their patients. I'm wondering, did you have much resistance when you've been introducing this technique in your own services? There's been a little bit of resistance. I think there's been some um, interesting comments about it being an unsafe practice on real patients. I think the challenge that comes to that is we believe there's actually more supervision um, in this case because the supervisor's constantly in the room, the supervisor's present in, in the whole process, they're constantly um, checking and rechecking with the, with the trainee on where they're up to within each of the, the, the situations. So I think overall, I think it's actually a safer environment um, than some of the the than you know some of the training environments that people experience today. Yeah, going off that, I think you have to look at how real-world clinical supervision occurs, and it often occurs from a distance from a coffee room with very little oversight. And um, this provides a, a way of supervising trainees of all levels, um, all the way from novice to provisional fellows, where you actually have a, a process by which you sit in the theatre and you have a formal learning experience. It was a pretty big frame shift, I think, for me to realise that what you're teaching or what I've heard from your teaching is that I've, I can still teach my trainees and supervise them safely while actually really focusing on helping them think about what they're actually doing and trying to achieve physiologically rather than telling them how I would do it. Yeah, and I think, you know, Eduardo Salas said it really well earlier in the conference. This is about cognitive fidelity. This is actually getting them to think clearly, realistically, in a real place, in a real time frame. Um, and then sharing that with the supervisor as opposed to guess what I'm thinking or what is that person thinking, oh my God, what are they doing? It's actually sharing that and getting that whole 
cognitive fidelity um, really occurring within the trainee. So definitely some amazing work from the team at Coffs Harbour. One of the highlights of the day was the health plenary entitled Future of Healthcare Simulation and I had the chance to chat with the whole panel who was involved. I've got Leonie Waterson here with me from the Sydney Clinical Skills and Simulation Centre. Leonie, you talked about automating BLS assessment and it looks like that works, but what were your sort of take-home points from that? The first was this question of how summative versus formative an assessment should be for a mandatory training competency like BLS. I guess uh, before I had a closer look at it, I assumed that we were doing largely summative assessment. I think from what I can see, um, the natural tendency is for the educators to be using much more formative assessment and that makes complete sense when you look at the literature on the importance of feedback and teachers. So it has got me thinking about how strong our voices should be when we're talking to stakeholders to reassure them that actually formative assessment can be performed to an extent that everyone should have confidence that people are going to practice BLS well in the ward. So this kind of overlaps with that whole literature on mastery learning and deliberate practice really, the idea that you have a solid endpoint but you have variable pathways to get there. It does exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And you took this then a next step to look at mandatory training more broadly and how can we use technology to enable that? I did uh, a little bit of kind of crystal ball gazing but it does make sense that if a computer can do at least part of the assessment task as well as a teacher then we should think about how we can introduce it because if, if for no other reason it improves access to assessment, which was our starting point for this pilot, we just realised that there were some subgroups of health professionals who just didn't get access to their um, BLS assessments. So, And then looking at the literature on this issue better, who does it better, people or machines, there is an interesting amount of literature that shows that Uh, clinicians, for instance, don't make consistently good judgments because they can't remain objective. They allow too much variable background data to influence their their judgment, which was, it's really interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So this is almost like a disruptive innovation within the health professional assessment world. Uh, Ben, I might bring you in here because you personally had a couple of things to say about that. (laughs) Uh, Tell us more. Well, I was worried about losing my job, basically, and innovating our way out of uh, employment in the future. But I think, um, bringing it back to what the audience thought, it was, um, how can I paraphrase it? I think there was an interesting kind of tension between recognising that we maybe don't do things as well as we think we are when we're experts uh, versus recognising that technology can do it better and then reflecting that conversation back on ourselves and going, okay, well, with that data, what do we actually want technology to do and what do we want to control ourselves? And I thought that was really interesting. Kind of conflict of opinion. Can help us with our innate Dunning-Kruger issues. Mm. Mm. All right, and for those who weren't there, you really did miss out because we had Leonie doing some uh, basic life support on the stage uh, to, and actually singing along with Staying Alive. So that was one, unfortunately, you've missed it if you're listening to this now. Uh, all right, then we moved on and Michelle Kelly presented some really groundbreaking stuff looking at the place of simulation within nursing curricula specifically and thinking about 
how much of the clinical placement could be replaced or where does simulation sit now? So, Michelle, what, what were the take-home messages? And I know you've got some research here that is waiting to be published, but you can give us a little sense of the questions you asked and, and what you think the trends are looking like. Thanks, Vic. And uh, the presentation was on behalf of uh, a collaborative uh, group, the um, Education Simulation and Safety Collaborative, uh, representing a um, handful of... Uh, experts in simulation in, uh, in nursing and midwifery uh, from Australia and New Zealand. So we wanted to uh, just cast the net out there following the substantial investment by HWA. Where are things now compared to a baseline survey, if you like, at the, at the beginning of the HWA era? We found that uh, despite a fairly low response rate, uh, we found a lot of interesting information and it was difficult to put that into a 20-minute presentation. Probably not surprising that a lot of the um, nursing programs, apart from addressing curricular needs, are looking uh, and basing their simulation encounters, which are mostly low and medium fidelity and representing holistic practice within nursing, but they're basing it not as much within the safety and quality guidelines. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, and that might be uh, meeting curricular demands, uh, the variability across programs, Mm -hmm. Um, but still there's um, a lot of work to be done within uh, faculty development and Mm -hmm. ongoing support. Yes, and that was a point that uh, Deborah Nestel made from the audience. Mm -hmm. I want to pick up on that point about variability because I noticed in some of your survey questions you're saying how does simulation replace or how much can simulation replace and it seems to me this term simulation unfortunately lacks a whole lot of specificity how did you approach that well we did put uh, specific definitions in with these questions uh, drawn from either the national council of state boards of nursing study from the u.s that large 10 site um, study but also the um, ssh dictionary and particularly around the terms fidelity uh, to make to try and reduce the variability. You can't always predict how people will interpret and then answer the question. So um, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and um, It's better than what we've had. It's better than what we had. And I think it gives us a good point in time now in 2017 to launch further um, into investigating this and suggesting where things go from Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I might go to Philippa Seaton now from the University of Otago. So this was across Australia and New Zealand. You made a point in there that you thought there were in fact some context differences in terms of thinking about clinical placements versus simulated practice uh, in in the nature of this study. Did you want to tell us a little bit about that? The, The difference in context is really related to the ease with which clinical placements are obtained in New Zealand relative to some of the pressures in larger Australian cities where there's a number of universities who who are all competing for those clinical placements and have very large student numbers. So whilst we think it's challenging in our context, it certainly was evident in, in this that we don't have the same challenges that they do in Australia yes. so that we have. We also have larger number of 
clinical hours to actually put that across. So we have between 11 and 1500 hours for clinical. So that does make some differences. But it was really useful for the study to look right across Australasia because, as you're probably aware, nurses can go Mm. between Australia and New Zealand Mm. um, under the agreements and things. So it is quite an important Australasian question to look at, really. Mm -hmm. For listeners who are not nursing... Uh, just to explain that a little bit, because certainly coming from medicine, we don't have a set number of clinical hours, whereas some healthcare pr- disciplines do. So I think to sort of understand this in what is arguably a political context as much as a educational one, I think is is quite interesting. Uh, so I might now go to Tracy Clavett Jones, and she's going to give us a little perspective. Where do you think this is going to go from here? Um, I think that is an interesting perspective because. In the last five or six years, what we know from the study and in comparison to the previous HWA scoping study, that we've made little progress. And that's really disappointing given the huge investment um, and the you know, increase in the number of resources um, that have you know, been purchased. I could see that in five years' time we'll have made no change unless we make the change. You know, Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. And I think we need to advocate for, you know, put it out that we have to replace some placement with simulation. We have to advocate that. We have to become more political. But we have to show how it can be done in a rigorous way. And we have to um, we have to have some standardised elements that can be used and accredited so that people have, they trust the reliability of the mm-hmm. simulation and that we can truly say it's high quality and it's standardised. So instead of thinking about it as a percentage of clinical hours, you would actually demarcate the domains of practice or the specific skill sets that you thought would be delivered by SIM. What could be delivered better by SIM in a more reliable way. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me a little bit more of an intellectual approach than just a number. Absolutely. Absolutely. That 800 hours of clinical placement, that was never based on any research. It was just, you know... Um, a lot of schools had a thousand hours. Some had seven fifty. They said, "Let's just take the mean and let's pick 800. Yeah. And if you are going, Tracy, to these uh, clinical placement folks, or indeed the clinical community, and saying why this is good, I get the sense we do have to say some of it's because we don't think there is the availability of clinical placements. But I think you're also saying it's not as good. I don't think we can generalise and say all clinical placements aren't as good. I think there are some that are not high quality. I wouldn't say that's, you know, the majority, but there's some that aren't high quality. But there's some things that are better taught Mm -hmm. in simulation. Mm -hmm. They can't be taught in... Well, I can't be taught in a reliable way in practice. And even um, things like... Um, you know, in a cardiac arrest, students are generally pushed to the side, and if the best they can become is passive observers, mm-hmm. whereas obviously in a simulation they're active participants. So I just think there's some things better taught in a standardised, simulated setting that, for later application in mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. All right, well, finally, Ben, we might bring you in again. Uh, and you, again, personally sit yourself, situate yourself a little more as a clinician. Yeah. How do you see this playing out in terms of the both acceptability of simulation replacing clinical placements, and how do you see those different domains of practice kind of spilling out? Yeah, look, I think that this data and the presentation we had today generated some very interesting discussion on those pros and cons. Um, And it certainly challenged my own assumptions on the fact that I guess it's a bit of a traditionalist sometimes. You kind of feel like that 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 hands-on human interaction and clinical placement is going to be a gold standard. And it was highlighted in the discussion that 
current practice is not necessarily best practice. Um, and I think there were some interesting points brought out by the audience that actually when they reflect on student opinions and I'd have to say when I reflect on my own med student experience, there was a lot of sitting in the corner with a lot of, uh, without much of a curriculum and this kind of assumption that people are going to passively become experts just by sitting from a far distance away from good clinical practice. And uh, so I think there was some really... Um, lively discussion about acknowledging the importance of how SIM can improve that curricula and improve that learning. And then a really wide spectrum about the belief of exactly how much do we replace versus how mm -hmm. much do we say, okay, well, we can't measure this, but there's got to be some measurement, there's got to be some benefit uh, from this human interaction and learning to care for each other in a hands-on clinical environment. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we'll be talking about this for a little while yet, but I think it was a perfect uh, final day plenary session, so thank you all very much. Mm -hmm. thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you.